Just keep moving forward. Just keep moving forward. And we're back. Welcome to East in the Arena, a place where we talk to East members about the unique things they do, why they do them, and how. My name is Jeremy Levin, and I am here with my co-hosts, Sean Murley and Mike Radomsky. Today, we had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Lourdes Swentek of UC Irvine and learn about something we really didn't know anything about, medical device making. It is this clandestine operation where you go make a thing, you can't really tell anyone what the thing is until it's made. Somehow, you have to get funded prior to making it, but until it's made, it's hard to get funded. The whole thing is confusing. I think other people feel the same way. Yeah, yeah. Luckily, Lourdes takes us through her story, which starts earlier than you would think. I started off at Loyola in Chicago as a medical student, and then I matched there initially, but then decided to take two years of research, which I did at UCI. I did basic science research and then finished my residency at Loma Linda. And that is where I thought I was going to be a transplant surgeon. I did two years of basic science transplant research. But she had an experience which reframed things. My husband and I were going to have dinner and then a liver came in and I was like, well, I'm going to go to the liver. And he's like, well, I thought we were having dinner. What's more important? And I'm like, oh dear. (laughs) So then I had to like rethink everything. And I was like, okay, I want to, I want to do something that's bloody, crazy, big cases. And I want to be able to be home when I'm home and in the hospital when I'm in the hospital. It's funny she mentioned liver transplant because that was also one of the things that I was interested in was it was trauma, cardiothoracic and transplant. And then I ended up doing emergency medicine. So, But it's very true, right? If I didn't have a family or a wife or other people that depended on me, I'd either be a liver transplant yeah. surgeon or a cardiac surgeon. Agreed. That's a very common story for trauma surgeons. You know, as a child, I was always like, oh, this could be done better. There's probably many of us that were like, man, if only I would have put that patent in. Like, I would have, I totally thought of that. Mikey, I could see, having known you, I could see this being you as a kid of like, someone says something (laughs) and you're like, no, that's stupid. We're doing it this way. (laughs) I do that now. Just ask my partners. (laughs) (laughs) I was really kind of nerdy, but I would always go on Google patents and I'm like, I wonder if this was discovered already. So then I would think of something that I thought was novel and lo and behold, it's already created or someone's already thought of it. And then there's like a list of things that I have, like a list of things that I look on Google patents and it hasn't been created. And I have a long list. It kind of reminds me of like how people come up with research topics. Like I have a bunch of attendings that have always advised and recommended that you like keep a running list of projects that you think are interesting. Like that list kind of builds up. And then at, when the time comes, you have a list of things to, to look into. It's very true. I have my list on my Google Docs as well. I have on my Apple Notes. Yeah, exactly. I feel like I need to start checking them off. Now, now's the time, Mike. Now's the time. So Lourdes went to Loma Linda where she started her attending life. And while teaching HLS, had a fateful encounter. I met one of the instructors there and he was like, oh, come check this out. I'm doing this device. And I looked at it and I was like, oh my God, wait a second. I want to do that. Then I got hired at UCI where I had a little bit more time. So I went through the list of things and I was like, which one would make most the most sense? 
my husband is not in the medical field. And so he is always like, you have this like long list and they haven't been created. Like, why haven't you put any effort into it? And I was like, well, I'm a trauma surgeon. I'm a mom of two kids. I don't, it's not like I'm like sitting around doing nothing. So he kind of kept pushing me to be like, you know, if you do have the time, might as well like protect it. It's a cool origin story. I just like to point out that's a ton of stuff on your plate. Yeah. Trauma surgeons or any, any physician always puts that like they have to do more when really what they're doing at a baseline is just an immense amount of stuff. So I went through and I wrote down and I gave diagrams and things for Loma Linda so that they wouldn't be able to like really touch it. And then I thought fleetingly about going it on my own. Yeah, that's like a, a daunting, I guess, uh, thought is go on your own any venture really, but like the invention and patent world, I feel like that's so nebulous and uh, could be very daunting. When has anyone ever talked to you about any of this stuff? Mine is zero, right? Like, I don't think I ever received even a sentence about medical device making. Right. It's always amazing because you just gotta, it seems like you just have to figure it out on your own. And yet none of that is taught to you. It's like this weird nebulous, like you said, Sean, this nebulous thing. And spoke to someone who is a patent lawyer and just to file the patent costs like some ridiculous amount of money just to do a patent search in the US. It's like some other ridiculous amount of money. And then to do a worldwide patent search, it's another ridiculous amount of money. And I was like, all right, well, I am not made of money. Did she look into trying to get money for that? So she's going to talk about that because like ultimately all of this is wrapped up in money. Right. What strikes me here is like she had the wherewithal to A, find a patent lawyer. I mean, I guess that's a Google, Googleable, Googleable, Googleable thing. I'll take it. Yep. Yeah. And then like kind of had the idea of like, well, we should do patent searches. I mean, that's kind of, that's crazy for someone, I'm assuming like us, received no formal training in any of this. So at UCI, I I gave no stipulations. And in fact, I'm now working with UCI. It's a completely different approach. I'm going through the university to file these patents. And while they'll own the intellectual property, it's worth it. They did the patent search. They have the patent lawyers. It's all registered. I had to put in no money on my own. I think it's just the way to go unless you're made of money. If you happen to have money sitting around, then it's potentially a good idea to try to keep those as yours. But at the same time, I was always worried that they'd be like, were you ever on the university computer when you wrote an email to a patent lawyer? I'm like, well, I didn't want to go down that road. Now UCI will own the two patents, which is fine. I didn't have to do any of the money up front, which is a lot. And then two, like if anything were to happen down the line, I wouldn't be liable. The university owns your patent. So like you're just named on there, but it's not ever going to be called the Swentech. I will say though, as far as last names go, the Swentech, that's like a pretty solid. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so, so here's my question then. I assume that throughout the process, she's like learning everything she can about it. Potentially in the future, couldn't she, you know, go her own way? And now that she has the knowledge of how to do all this stuff, she can kind of go on her own. I think she gets into that about the power of collaboration. But for the record, though, the Murley or the Radomsky, those are reasonable device 
names. <laughs> but Swentech just takes the cake. Swentech takes the cake. Levin or my middle name, Holsmacher. No, it just doesn't roll off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> you can make a device. It'll be like the Levin anal extractor or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're moving on. It takes so much time. When you file the provisional patent, they have anywhere from like six to 18 months to come back with a decision for you. So like I'm waiting around, not working on it really, because I'm not going to work on something if they decide like, we're not going to go for this. So to the university, it looks like she's done nothing. I'm sitting around waiting to see if I should work on this patent and work on a prototype. And it took a year for them to get back to me to be like, okay, we are going to file the provisional. So that time it takes for everything is just so much slower than what we're used to. This has just been so slow. Think about how crazy that is. Six to 18 months. Yeah. If you submitted like a manuscript to a journal and it took 18 months to hear back from, you'd be like, well, that's insane. I had a paper that took eight months, but 18 is, is quite quite challenging this isn't like a oh i thought of something tomorrow it'll come out like this is like from talking to my friend who actually has a device that's like almost ready he said for three years he thought of it every single day and worked on it every single day and it's just at the point of human trials so by the time it actually comes out to market we're talking 15 years Well, I mean, isn't that like the whole drug company argument is they spend so much time developing and so much money developing the drug and they have to charge a lot for it because they have to make money before it goes generic. Are we going to be sympathizers to Big Pharma? No, I'm not a sympathizer at all. I'm just, (laughs) if the patent laws were different, maybe drugs would be cheaper. Yeah, it, it sort of makes you feel like you're being lazy almost. There's so many hoops. Think about anything we do. If your 15-year goal is like, yeah, I'm going to be a division chief (laughs) or like something like that. Not like (laughs) I'm going to make a single thing. For the first one, I just filed a record of invention. That is telling your university that you're recording your invention and this is what it does and this is the background. And the sheet is very similar to like a research project. And then a couple months later, you meet with a patent lawyer, you fix a couple things and then boom, it's a provisional patent. And then my other patent, that one I went the approach of collaboration with an engineer And that is huge. And I think if I had any recommendations would be to get a hold of like one of the engineers at your institution and collaborate with them. Do you guys suffer from CBAS? Mikey, I I know you know what CBAS is. What's that? CBAS, can't be alone syndrome. Can't be alone syndrome. No, I don't think so. No? I don't know if we can be friends. What, What does that mean? Can't be alone. Can't be alone. You gotta, you gotta go see a consult with a buddy. Yeah, you have to do something with a buddy. Never alone. Can't be Never alone. alone. I can be alone. You're in the ED, so you. you don't <laughs> know that, and this collaboration thing to me is like can't be alone syndrome. You just need a buddy. So she talks about the benefits of working with an engineer because their mindset is just very different from a surgeon's. 
the things that I learned with engineers is they just have a different mindset. So like we know the problem, right? But we just don't really have the solution and they have the solution. So she started having meetings with her engineers. We got together and basically when I was in labor, there was no way of measuring cervical dilation other than like by checking. And I was like, well, that's silly. Like, why wouldn't you be able to know more often? So we came up with this device that you can put through the Foley catheter, which if you're getting an epidural, you're getting a Foley, which would measure cervical dilation in real time. That one's really nice. And that one required a prototype, which the engineer helped me with. I would have never thought that that would be the, the, the tool or the patent that we were looking at. I mean, yeah. Quite ingenious. But but here's the thing. The best inventions come from personal experiences. And this one is, I think this is such a great idea. And when I told it to my wife, she's like, hells yeah, this is a great idea. It uses ultrasound and uses ultrasound measurements through a Foley. Wow, that's incredible. It's an ingenious wow. idea, right? Like, yeah. But then they were like, oh, why don't we start looking at fetal oxygen and fetal heart rate and all this stuff? You could totally do that using optoacoustics. I'm like, I don't even know what that means, but it sounds wonderful. And it's just so fun to talk to them, too, because <laughs> they like they don't know the like human aspect. Like, no, you can't actually put lasers on the baby's head like the fetus. Nope. Nope. That's not going to work. That's the part I've enjoyed the most, actually, is the collaboration with the engineers. I liked how she said that we know the problems and they have the solutions. It sometimes needs tempering because we shouldn't be installing lasers on babies' heads. <laughs> In order to do the experiments that I was talking about with the cervical dilation, I needed money, right? Like, I don't have a lab. I'm brand new. I'm a brand new faculty. So I had to apply for grants in the similar way that you would for like research and spend time working on these experiments with nothing to show for it. And they're, they're so specific to make a device. It's a whole different language because they're going to want a lot of things that we've never talked about. Right. They want all the techniques. They want to be able to like build it based on your grant, which is why you need the engineer. <laughs> Thank God I had an engineer on my team because I would have absolutely no idea how to how to write that grant. I think it was like $50,000 in order to be able to do the FDA regulations, the market research, all the experiments that you need to do. It's enough money to get your product to market. The unfortunate thing is they want a product. They want something that has been shown to work. They want a prototype. They want it to be ready to go. You know, you need money. So then I had to find university funds first to be able to do the experiments. So now we're at this stage of doing the experiments through the university, making sure that it works. Then the next step would be probably applying for that same grant through the university, or you could go outside. It's like this weird catch-22. Catch-22, yep. You're going to make a device. To make a device, you need money, but you can't get money until you've made the device. What kind of bizarre world are we living in? Yeah. So what I've realized is that the university is going to like back basically things that are 
going to be used by everyone because there's no way they're going to go for something that only, you know, 12 times a year you're going to be using it. There's like this weird neb, neb, <laughs> weird web. <laughs> cut that out. This weird web that grows. So if you want to go for university money, the university money is usually predicated on you've done X, Y, or Z. There's proof of concept, all that stuff. You go for outside money, that too has its drawbacks and limitation. If you go outside, there's a bunch of different funding sources that you can do, but then you have to sort of like play around with who gets what at the end of the day. Because then if you're taking the university out, then why are we giving them 50%? And then you have to like shove in your percentage and make sure that you're not getting cut out. It's such a scam. <laughs> but you know, so when as she and I were talking, I kind of was thinking, well, the the grants, writing the grant, getting the funding, that has to be the most difficult part. Uh, but she said that's really not the biggest hurdle that you have to overcome. I mean, the biggest hurdles I think is like motivation to keep going, to be honest. It's such a slow process. You are starting to like doubt yourself. Could I be doing something else that's more productive? Could I be doing something that is going to actually like the university is going to be like, I'm glad we hired her. Yeah, I get that. I, I can see how that would be very frustrating to, you know, wait over a decade for something to actually come to fruition eventually. But I feel like when it finally does, I can't imagine what that feeling is like. It's got to be weird because clinical research, you publish a study. Whether or not people want to follow it, it's not really, you're not dependent on that, right? It's not like mm. you did the study. This is like, right. okay, you've done the 15 years of work. It's now in the market. Yeah. Now are people actually going to use this physical thing that you made? So far, I've had some like little encouragements that keep me going. For example, if I don't get that POP grant again, I'll be like, oh my God, do I need to just like scrap this idea, right? Before going out in the world. You need colleagues like yourself that are like, yeah, keep going. You, you got this, you know, cause it is a 15 year process. And we're so used to like getting feedback right away that we're, it's not in our nature to be patient. So you apply for the grant, it gets denied. You've already poured in a couple of years just to get to the point of applying for the grant. And some people put in uh, their own money into that too. And it's not just time and effort, but money. Rick, like clinical stuff you put into the grant or you don't get the grant, but you're still doing other work that's either mm -hmm. equipoise towards the grant. You're doing other clinical things. It's very easy to pivot. But here you've invested so much of yourself in making this physical thing that pivoting away from it either has to be hugely defeating or you just feel like hopeless, you know? Yeah. The doubt is definitely there. And especially with universities, like there's some universities, MIT, for example, they're taking ideas, they're doing, they're the ones that are helping out with the market research. They're doing the FDA regulation in-house. Honestly, like if I would have read ahead of time what it takes, I probably wouldn't have done it. So I'm learning things as I go and realizing like, oh, okay, so now I have to do this step. Had someone like laid out, okay, here's all the steps. And then you reach 15 years later to this product. And then maybe, maybe someone will go for it. I'd be like, that sounds insane. Why would you ever do that? You may think it's awesome because you put time into it, but 
my biggest fear is you do the market research and everyone's like, what? <laughs> you're, you're doing what? Does that seem like a uniquely surgical mindset? I know the end result is going to be bad, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> Does she make up for that statement? Because if, if not, I don't know if we should leave that in. It's kind of a, kind of a downer. At the same time, with her reflection on that, her insight into that, she's still doing this stuff. She knows the journey ahead is going to be as tough as the journey she's already done. Yeah. And she's still showing up and doing it. I know. I like the story of the wound back because it was a plastic surgeon who thought of it at Wake Forest. And, you know, he started doing it, helped with wound healing. But when it started coming out, older attendings, if you will, are like, that's the dumbest idea I've ever seen. Like, why would you do that? You know, like it's expensive, whatever. And I think that's the parable you have to go by because the process of doing all this is really hard, but the journey is incredible. And the things that you learn really are transformative. So if you're bold enough to go into medical device making, Lourdes has some steps she thinks you should follow. I would definitely reach out to the engineers in your university and just talk about your your list. You will be surprised at how like that gives you motivation because they're enthusiastic about it. They have solutions for it and they give you, unlike surgeons, they don't give you a list of like, oh, that's not gonna work. That's, they give you a list of like possibilities. Collaboration is key. Step two, start a paper trail. Put the record of invention in and it turns out you may end up being able to push it through. Step three, find the thing that keeps you going. The next thing is motivation. Find someone, like I have my friend who was in the device and like, you know, we'll text, I'm at this point and they're like, oh yeah, I remember that. <laughs> so someone to help kind of be your cheerleader is really helpful. And step four, don't go in it alone. There's a lot of things that I'm doing that I've never, ever, ever done before. And so I have to ask people to be like, what am I doing? How do I do it? And help me. And in the end, realize you are uniquely positioned to do this. Physician inventors or, or surgeon inventors just makes absolute sense to me because we're usually the ones using the device. We're usually the ones that are like, oh, this doesn't work. This would be better like this. And we'll, we'll just complain about it, right? We won't do anything about it. We'll just complain like, oh man, if only they did this. So it just makes sense to me that we would be the ones that would be involved in device making. That's us. If you want to hear more East in the Arena episodes or other East products like the TraumaCast or CareerCast, visit east.org or wherever fine podcasts are found. East in the Arena is a product of the Educational Resources Committee and was created by Mike Radomski, Sean Murley, and Jeremy Levin. This episode was produced by me, Jeremy Levin. Intro and outro music were created and performed by Matt Holsmacher. See you next time. This was a, I don't know where I'm going to put this, but it's a perfect Dory moment. Just keep moving forward. Just keep moving forward. Love it. That should be the intro. As somebody who's watched Finding Nemo like 40 times. 40 times?
Yeah. Oh man, I'm just just get ready. Just get ready, my friend. You have a kid now. <laughs> Do you know how many times I've seen Finding Dory? Do you even understand? Forty is not close. I will guarantee you that I will. I've oh watched gosh. the princess movie with Elsa more times. Um, I'm sorry. Are you talking about Frozen One, oh. Frozen Two, Olaf's Adventure? Oh yeah, the Olaf's Adventure. <laughs> I, I, anything. We're currently on. Oh no, we did Moana for like eight months, and then we did what's the other one? The the one with the talking house. Or the the house that has the magic in in the mountains. Oh, in, oh come, Encanto. No, no, Encanto. Encanto come on. Yes. This uh, is canon, man. I will say <laughs> one movie that we watched that I didn't expect us to watch so much because my daughter loved it was Hamilton. Oh. <laughs> she was, she was huh. a year and a half and it was the pandemic and Hamilton came out. I think every family watched it. It came out on Disney and she watched it all the way through, which is incredible for a one and a half year old. Cause that shit is it's like three hours long. <laughs> like, it, like I, we got to be near in 20, 20 Hamiltons. Do you know what that does to you? I'm embarrassed to say I still haven't seen it yet. Oh, it's great. Uh, I'm sure it's great. The first time. <laughs> I'm sure it's great. The first time. <laughs> 